1: Yes, it is, and welcome back. Let me give you the number off the top here, 602 It's Wednesday, October 27th, 2021. Good to have our uh, producer pro tem with us today, Chris Ellen. Chris, welcome. Thanks for being here. Bill will be back tomorrow. How you doing, buddy? It's been a while. Doing good. Good doing to have good. you with us. You've, you've done the thing I said was impossible to do. I don't. We'll bookmark this and come back to it later. We won't open the show with it. But you've achieved something that I thought was impossible. Uh, Remind me if if I don't get to it. There's a lot to get to on the news. And um, I'm going to play an excerpt in a little bit of what transpired with Attorney General Merrick Garland today at the United States Senate. He was there to answer questions, obviously, uh, if you're unfamiliar with it, about his memo uh, which, in his now famous memo, directed uh, to um, directed to law enforcement agencies throughout the country and specifically engaging the FBI in uh, monitoring and working with other local law enforcement to observe, arrest, let's just say deal with parents, the outbreak of harassment, his words, the outbreak of harassment and violence by parents at school board meetings directed at school board members. We'll get to all of this in just a moment, but before we get to it at level the level of adults arguing with adults, I think it's important we take a step back to to, to remember what this is all fundamentally about at the wholesale level. We're now dealing with it as a retail matter. Rightly so, a retail matter of the Attorney General uh, flexing the muscles of federal law against parents who are uh, trying to defend uh, their children at their school board meetings, but let's not forget the wholesale issue here. The wholesale issue being what is being put into the minds, arms, and on the faces of children, and it's start, it's pretty much in that direction, in that order. Uh, it's it's firstly about the children's minds and their brains and critical race theory. And secondarily, these school board meetings that have turned uh, into um, uh, news stories. Secondarily, they have been about COVID mediation, masks and vaccines, mask mandate and vaccine mandates. Those we are instructed by King David, who show compassion to children, will receive the compassion of God. We shouldn't need to know this from King David. We should need we should we should know ab initio that children should be the most protected class of any human being. Right? Isn't that in fact what we used to know and take for granted? And have, have we at the same time or at least in dispensing with that memory not Taken children and moved them into so many pawns in our political games? Hannah Arendt is the latest quote I like on this. The caricature of progressive education by abolishing the authority of adults implicitly denies their responsibility for the world into which they have born their children and refuses the duty of guiding them into it. Have we now come to the point where it is the children who are being asked to change or improve the world? And do we intend to have our political battles fought out in the schoolyards? Now, before I get to the school boards and the schoolyards, before I get there, when critical race theory, and there's a lot to get there on, trust me, I have a lot to say about it, because a lot transpired about it today in the news. But before I get there, Let's just for a moment stick with the vaccine mandates that are coming down the pike. We have now been instructed that children 12 or older need to be vaccinated, and the FDA has now approved a vaccine, two shots, to those aged 5 through 11, starting with kindergartners. Now, what was revealed overnight... Was that one of the FDA examiners, one of those 17, a professor at Harvard named Eric Rubin, professor of medicine at Harvard named Eric Rubin, one of them said something that's been making the rounds, as well it should have been since he articulated it yesterday. You've heard it on some other radio shows today, perhaps. It should be the quote of the week. It should be the quote of the year. It should be the quote of this entire pandemic. But like everything else, it will be a story for us today, and by tomorrow, it will be forgotten, if not memory hold. He said, and I quote directly, we're never going to learn about how safe this vaccine is unless we start giving it. Now, he's talking about the examination for children. We're never going to learn about how safe this vaccine is unless we start giving it. Now, to show you how out of touch the mainstream media is on this, the Washington Post put a story out on it this morning. Must help the party, must cover for the party. An FDA advisor headline, an FDA advisor said we need to give kids vaccines to fully understand their safety. Here's the crucial context. So the senior reporter at The Washington Post, Aaron Blake, says that that quote, we're never going to learn about how safe this vaccine is unless we start giving it, was taken out of context. And the greater context makes it far more understandable why he said that. So helpfully, this Washington Post writer, senior journalist, as his title tells us, gave us the fuller context. You tell me if it makes things better or worse. It shows you how clueless they are about our concerns. They're not listening to us. They are not listening to us. Here it is. He's quoting Eric Rubin from the transcript. He thinks this helps him. Quote, This is a much tougher one, I think, than we had expected coming into it. The data show that this vaccine works, and it's pretty safe, pretty safe. And yet we're worried about a side effect that we can't measure yet, but it's probably real. We're worried about a side effect that we can't measure yet, but it's probably real. It's a very sort of personal choice, he continues. If I had a child who was a transplant recipient, I would really want to be able to use a vaccine, and there are certain kids who probably should be vaccinated. Question how, the question of how broadly to use, I think, is a substantial one. And I know it's not a question, and I know we're kind of punting this. Now we're punting. By the way, how many children do you know who've needed transplants that this would be included? The population of children who require transplants, which is this doctor's example of, of a child that would need a vaccine— Because children who who require transplants or who have health conditions akin to needing a transplant, we make a blanket rule for every child? Okay, just just so you know, this is what the doctor's perspective is. Let me continue with quoting him from the Washington Post transcript. But I do think it's a relatively close call. It's really going to be a question of what the prevailing conditions are, but we're never going to learn about how safe this vaccine is unless we start giving it. That's just the way it goes. What about that context is better? What about that context is better? None of it. None of it. Now, the question I heard other talk show hosts talking about this morning on this station and doing a really good job with, they were talking about, vaccinating children and picking up on the theme, whether they were using my work or not, doesn't matter. Anyone can come to this conclusion. Picking up on the theme that children really aren't that at risk for COVID. They're just not. They're just not. 14 times the number of children commit suicide as have died from COVID in any given year. 14 times, yet the mitigation strategies, as we now know, as the science is now in from the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry and the American Academy of Psychiatry, is that the isolation, the uncertainty, the fear and grief around these mitigation efforts have caused tremendous mental health emergencies in our youth. Okay? Um, My point is this. My point is this. Everyone was talking about the children really not needing the vaccine. And even this Dr. Eric Rubin says, you know, maybe if they're a transplant patient, they would need one. So the question then becomes, well, as someone said to me, I get it. But isn't this about children passing it to adults? Isn't this about children passing it to adults? I want to talk about that when we come back, because the science on that is not very clear, not very clear at all. In fact, there's science counter to it. But the morality of it, to me, couldn't be more pellucidly clear. A society that fears its children is a society that is truly mentally and emotionally sick. And I'll tell you about that when we come back. We'll be right back. Talk, talking about the vaccine and children and these comments by Eric Rubin saying that we have to give it to them to find out what it does... Um, led to this discussion with a friend of mine as we were listening to another radio host on this network ably discussing this issue about how few children COVID affects in a dramatic or negative way. And the question was, well, I think the concern is that children can pass it to adults. The studies actually don't show that. And they don't show it for children under 10. So keep in mind, when we're all jumping for joy that 5 to 11-year-olds can now be vaccinated, ask yourself again, who are we doing this for and who are we doing this to? The New York Times was helpful in not knowing how so in a story they did yesterday. They uh, New York Times did a story yesterday titled "When Vaccinating Kids Should an 11-Year-Old Wait to Turn 12 to Get a Bigger Dose?" It's about whether kids' weight, age, and dosing matters. So they turned to five experts in, immune, in immunology and infectious diseases, and turns out, if you're curious about the answer, the weight doesn't seem to matter. But but here's the interesting thing. All five of those doctors interviewed in this article, all five of them, talked about the vaccine and its ability to, they think, they think, its ability to help reduce the harm in children. Not one of them said anything about spread to adults. Not a one. Here's a piece from the story. The two-dose, 10-microgram shot in the vaccine trial of 5 to 11-year-olds had a 91% efficacy rate, indicating it is very effective at preventing symptomatic infection in young children. Symptomatic infection. None of it, none of this has to do with spreading the disease to adults. So again, I ask you who we are doing this for, which is the same question... I should ask about critical race theory and the Merrick Garland memo and the parents standing up to defend not only their children and to defend not only their rights to bring their children up in a race-neutral society, in a racially neutral society, in a race-neutral society, but their rights to be heard and their rights— to direct the education of their children away from infectious, noxious doctrines about race. Parents can have, obviously, different views. No one is saying they can't. But someone is saying they can't have a view expressed at a school board meeting, aren't they? A lot of someone's. The Department of Justice, for example. Now, why do I say this has to do with with affecting and infecting very young children. Well, I stumbled on this story from Yahoo News. Loudoun County parents, Loudoun County, Virginia, it's ground zero for these debates, Loudoun County parents required to sign NDA to view CRT-affiliated curriculum. Most people would look at that headline and say, NDA, CRT, let me move on. NDA is a non-disclosure agreement. CRT is critical race theory. Parents now have to sign non-disclosure agreements to view critical race theory affiliated curriculum. Let's work in reverse. First, I thought there wasn't critical race theory curriculum going on in our schools. Now they have to sign non-disclosure agreements to look at it, to read it. You know why? You know what the non-disclosure agreement prevents them from doing? talking about it, taking pictures of it, take, making copies of it, distributing it, making people aware of it. That's why they have to sign non-disclosure agreements. Now, happily enough, the Yahoo story, the Yahoo News story, yeah, Yahoo story, Yahoo News story says that the curriculum in question is one called the Second Step curriculum. Now, if you go to the home page of the Second Step organization, whose curriculum requires evidently a nondisclosure agreement from parents who want to see it, though not nondisclosure agreements from the teachers or the staff who want to promote, buy, and teach it, you can't by definition have a nondisclosure agreement if the goal is to teach it. Their page says, we draw our curriculum from a handful of sources, and they list them. They list the sources. One of them is an organization called Learning for Justice. I know you have to kind of go down these roads to get to this, but this is how it works for the left. We must fuddle them, remember. Learning for Justice is one of the organizations they rely on for their co- curriculum. If you go to Learning for Justice's website, you will see, you will see that they have curriculum for grades. K through 2. I mean, they have curriculum for other grades, too, but they have curriculum for grades gay, K through 2. One of them titled Viva La Rasa asking, I guess we're now talking about five- and six-year-olds, what are the difference—here's one question—what are the difference between how I live and how other people live, and how does that affect unfairness in the past— You are now asking five- and eight-year-olds, how is this result? Sorry, how is this resulting from unfairness in the past? You are now asking five-, six-, and seven-year-olds to learn what is obviously going to be, but even if it wasn't, very complicated, very complex history to deal with questions of unfairness. You are asking 3rd graders to learn about the imprisonment of the Japanese during World War II in California. And you are asking 7th graders—we're now approaching the ages of 10 and 11. You are now asking 7th graders and 12— Uh, uh, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds, you are now asking them, according to this curriculum, to talk about gender and transgender issues. Do you think children are able to process this through the teachers of this curriculum or through these organizations? Do you think children are capable of understanding and processing these things? Or is there an old word that comes to mind just about now as I describe all this. An old world, an old word, it's a portmanteau word, it's called brainwashing. Brainwashing with propaganda. You cannot continue to treat 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12-year-olds either physically, emotionally, or intellectually like adults. Without surrendering A. Adulthood And B. Childhood None of those distinctions matter to communists None of them That's why there are youth communist leagues And that's why there was a youth Nazi league None of this matters to the ideologues and the demagogues It should matter to you I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. 34 past the hour brings us our culture and economy update from the great Johnny D. John Dombrowski from Grand Canyon Planning Associates. GrandCanyonPlanning.com is his website. The word on wealth right here every Saturday at 7 a.m. It's his radio show. Together securing Arizona's future one family at a time. J.D., how are you today?
2: Fantastic. Thank you for the
1: intro. You betcha, of course. Uh, I want to talk about this story on 401k contributions and some interesting things certain private entities are doing. There was a big story on KPMG. Now, your calling card is helping people plan for and manage their retirements. Tell me about this, this, this automatic employer 401k contribution sans match.
2: You know, we talk about 401Ks a lot with our clients, of course. You know, they have a company maybe they're working for that offers a company-sponsored retirement uh, savings program such as a 401K. Uh But there are different types of plans out there that can be utilized by a company. There could be the traditional 401K, which gives the employee an opportunity to contribute, as well as the employer to decide to do some form of matching if they choose to. There's a simple 401k for self-employed individuals, a solo 401k for self-employed individuals. There's also profit sharing that could be added onto this. There's Roth 401ks. There's all sorts of 401k plans. But in this article that uh, key uh, for KPMG, what they were is they had a traditional 401k plan but they decided now to go to more of a safe harbor plan. And what the safe harbor plan does, Seth, is the employer's going to contribute to your 401k whether you do or not. Right. And that's a nice benefit because. M- most people be understand inter- a 50
1: 50 type system, right?
2: Right, where maybe if, if, if you contribute, the company will right. also contribute. Right. And right. if that's going to happen, you absolutely want to take advantage of that. That's free money. But in this case, even if you don't contribute, in with certain scenarios, maybe some people, their cash flow might be you know a little challenged at certain times of their working career, and they can't find that extra money to put into the 401k. Well, even though you're not putting money in the 401k, in this case, they're going to be making a contribution to the plan anyway. So you're going to be getting that contribution. It's a nice incentive for employees. And it's a way, I think, uh, they're, they're looking at this as a way to possibly entice employees to come to KPMG. It makes sense. Our plan here at my company, is the same type of a scenario. It's a safe harbor plan. Even if my employees don't contribute, we put money into the retirement account each and every year, and that is fully vested for uh, them as well. Wow. So they don't have to be, you know, wait five years to get that.
1: Wow that's an impressive thing about your company john one of many impressive things let me ask you this because i know a lot of employees personally here elsewhere they think about putting money away in a 401k versus i guess it's the classic time value dis- dis- discussion and distinction versus you know saying i need the i kind of need the money now Uh, And over time, I'll manage socking my money away in my own retirement plan. Thank you very much. Uh, How do you advise people in that frame of mind? Because, you know, I'm sure in some cases it's right.
2: Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges with the 401k is is once you put that money in there or any retirement account, there are tax advantages Mm -hmm. to it, right? Mm -hmm. It grows tax deferred if it's a traditional type of a retirement account. Uh, And at some point in the future when you pull money out, you will pull it out as unearned income and it will be taxable in the year that you receive it however um, you have to wait there are limits you know you have to wait until the age of fifty nine and a half in many cases before you can touch that money without a penalty so if you're thirty years of age right now saving to purchase you know maybe buy a house and you're thinking about raising a family sometimes it might be a little bit of a challenge for you to put money into a 401k and know that you can't touch that money for a lot of years because you need money today to you know, pay the day-to-day expenses, or maybe you're going to trying try to save to purchase a home, whatever it may be. So there could be a challenge there, but I encourage everybody that don't wait, don't delay, do the best you can, even if it's just a little bit of money each pay period. Put something away for your retirement because, boy, those years go by quick, Seth, as you and I probably both would agree. And before you know it, you're going to coming up upon a time when you're thinking about retirement and you're going to be wondering why didn't I save more when I was younger because those years when you're saving over time that time value of money as you talked about the growth on that and the compounding effect that you can have over decades of time can be uh, just incredible the amount of growth you can get out of a retirement account
1: Nicely done, John. Thank you for that. You bet. You bet.
2: And again, folks, if they want to talk further about that, can reach out to us by uh, going to our website, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. Request an appointment. Securities and advisory services offered to Client 1 Security LLC, a member of Finder and an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client 1 security LLC are not affiliated. Thank you so much, Seth, for all you do.
1: Thank you, John Dombrowski, for all Charlie you do. Charlie Kirk. Welcome I'm back to the Seth Leapson Show, 602508. Zero nine six zero. Yes, you've heard the ads. This is going to be an amazing event. Really, the event of um, I don't know if it's the year or the decade, but November sixteenth. Uh, mark your calendars. Better yet, go online while tickets last. We're bringing in Larry Elder, Dennis Prager, and Charlie Kirk for an event we're titled, we've titled "America for Which It Stands: Defending America in an Age of Authoritarianism and Censorship." Prager, Kirk, Elder—the three people. You want to hear from more right now are the three people you can think of who better embrace, teach, and prescribe the medicines the society needs to bind up its ills and wounds, to address its ills and bind up its wounds. November 16th, go to 960thepatriot.com. Become a Patriot Insider while you're there and you get a discount on those Tickets. I'll be there too. It'd be great, just great to see you all. Let me go. Okay. Yes, I wanted to talk about uh, a Netflix special coming out that kind of feeds this endless present loop of the party. In a moment, I'll get to that. Let's go to Rick in Scottsdale first. Hello, Rick.
3: Hi. Thank you very much. So I'll get to my point. Uh, number one about the children's vac- the vaccination for the children with ninety percent effectiveness. Well. They already have more than 90 percent effectiveness without the vaccine.
1: That's right. That's right.
3: I mean, like, how could they even – that's that's just a
1: – Much uh, higher, actually. Much higher. Much higher. Much
3: higher. So that's a phony talking point. There's just,
1: 50, roughly, give or take, 50 million children in our K-12 through schools, give or take. 50 million. There's been, over the course of uh, almost two years of COVID now, uh, there have been about 550 – Five hundred and fifty child deaths from or with COVID. Marty McCary at Johns Hopkins says every single one of them with comorbidities, by the way.
3: Yeah. yeah, and, and why would anybody subject their children for, to such uh, you know side effects of that's it's just plain stupid. Number two, I don't know if you've heard about it, but I'm getting information from doctors I know and and research that apparently is coming out of the United, United Kingdom will that in my opinion is the, is the most important thing and they're saying that 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 the the vax the vaccination and or the inoculation whatever you want to call the yeah. damn thing is uh is good is creating an immune deficiency syndrome similar to aids where the body's immune system will will self-destruct and eat itself and it's they're, they're they have tests running that are showing that the that the uh That there's a degradation in the in a person's immune system uh, after taking the vaccination. It's it's subtle, and it might take some years to eventually accomplish. You know the the what could be uh, uh, a wiping out of a whole generation of people.
1: I have not heard about that, Um, uh, and and that's probably for lack of looking on my part. rick but i will tell you having the transcript of this physician from harvard eric rubin who was the one quoted earlier as saying yesterday to the fda that uh, we're never going to learn about how safe this how safe this vaccine is unless we start giving it uh he also said quote we're worried about a side effect that we can't measure yet but it's probably real close quote well there you go now okay now You know, I have I have campaigned for two decades on experimenting with children and experimenting with veterans and experimenting uh, with uh, people who are in our minority communities. All of it, all of it is not just immoral. It's and I hardly ever use this language. I honestly hardly ever do. I think you could look back through all my broadcasts. I've never really called public policy a sin before but it's a sin. Experimenting yeah, with children I, in public policy is a sin.
3: It, 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 I, I, don't, I don't have a whole lot of time, so I'm just going to give you my last comment okay. here, I think is important, okay? Yep. Regarding the China issue or the Taiwan issue. So the last time I heard Pasaki, whatever her name is, uh, uh, answer the issue about whether the United States is going to defend Taiwan, and her rambling on first part Of her message was, yeah, we're going to we're going to we're we're committed to defending Taiwan. But the last part of her message was, where their primary position is that we don't want to see anything to come to blows. Okay, that I'm paraphrasing. Well, that means that if there's any of us, in my opinion, if you know the Democrats are always talking double talk out of one, but always they're always lying about this kind of stuff, and that means. They're going to give up. I mean, they, that means the, Demi- the, the Biden will, if, he, if his primary position on Taiwan is that he doesn't want to see anything to come to blows. Uh, and the, the Chinese have an overwhelming force in the area. That means the, the Biden is just going to capitulate to whatever the situation is because they're not going to fight.
1: You know, meaning when you said they're going to give up. Part well, of me I mean, wanted they, they, to say. Part of me wanted to say we already have. Part yeah, of me wanted I, I, to say this culture has already I, given up, and this government of ours has already given up.
3: I I agree, and and I it, there's I don't want you know the the illusion that that Biden is going to defend Taiwan. Uh, is it, just that an illusion, I, and uh, I'm.
1: I think the delusion that he's going to protect America is a delusion.
3: Uh, well, that too. I mean, that's, that's like as, as plain as day on your nose. You have a chairman of the America. Joint
1: Chiefs of Staff of the United yeah. States military who calls our communist counterparts in China to tell them of strategic maneuvers, yes and no, from the United States that they may be worried about you have a chairman we're... of the joint chiefs of staff of the military who says he reads marx and lenin to better understand not the enemy the american people oh my god you tell me what china's afraid of right now yeah it ain't the united states of america they just tested a hypersonic missile we were busy writing a we were busy writing a document at our department of defense as to how and why transgendered military members should be able to bunk in the gender they want to, in the gender bunk they want to. That's what we were doing. You think China's doing that? I'm telling you right now, they aren't. Yeah. I don't... I, 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 I run out of things to be surprised about and shocked over. And, you know, I was talking to a friend this morning. I was mentioning this friend. We were listening to radio and having a political conversation about the things we were listening to. I was talking and he, he says, it's, it's just tough to know where to, where to put your outrage these days. You know, we can only have so much. And it dawned on me two things. Yeah, of course he's right. This is what we learned from screw tape. The purpose is to fuddle them, confuse people. Of course, this is why I call it a crisis industrial complex. But the other point do we ever take a step back and say, Why should we be forced in positions of outrage? Why, why why, why, is outrage now our only response? I'll tell you. I have a thought on that because it ain't healthy for a polity to live in outrage. I have a thought on that. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson show. Outrage. I want to talk about that a moment. A friend of mine said, how do you know, you know, how, how are we supposed to focus direct our outrage with so much incoming? You know, which which uh which missiles do we – which missiles of, uh, of Marxism do we aim our limited Iron Dome, intellectual Iron Domes at, right? Um, outrage, it's an interesting thing, things we get outraged about. I think after a while, outrage turns to numbness because we become not whelmed but overwhelmed as a society by it. First of all, it's not healthy – To be in a state of outrage. Perhaps it is a deliberate set of provocations. Perhaps there is a deliberate set of provocations aimed at us to get the response that they want, which is the response not of the mind, not of the mouth, but, you know, outrageous action. Perhaps that's at play here. But even if it weren't, even if it weren't, it is simply unhealthy for society to be always angry. We know what those societies look like. They end up taking down things like World Trade Centers. World Trade Centers. Societies like that end up doing things like that. Outrage is a supremely unhealthy. It's an extreme. It's an Aristotelian extreme. And yet, and yet the incoming is unrelenting and the rapidity at which the effort to change society is unremitting. And that's why I think what is so darned interesting is the effect to get us to submit into an, era, into an aura of compliance that will trump our outrage. And the way to get that done, obviously, is through cancellation and censorship. I was reading, I was reading uh, Jean-Francois Ravel's book, How, How, How Democracies Perish. And I flagged on page 115 where he writes a totalitarian system because that's, I think, the word we need to be using these days. A totalitarian system responsible to no one but itself can return to the job in hand over and over again, especially since it can hide its failures behind a screen of censorship or distort them with propaganda ever feel like you're living in that society? Or an increasingly totalitarian society based on that description and that definition from one of the great French philosophers of our age who knew what communism was, having been one at one point, only to grow out of it? My fear is raising a series of children, 50, an army of 50 million children, into it. Yeah, some will leave, but you still got tens of And tens and tens of millions left who are taught that the best thing to do to the ones who don't buy it or leave it is to shut them up.